Our need to stand still in a world filled with chaos and uncertainty has never been more important. You are invited to take this moment to wrap your heart and mind in narratives from the Hebrew scriptures, connect to its deep guidance, and move toward practices for encountering the presence of God in your life. Thanks for listening today to the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bruff. The following recording is part of a series called Be Still and Behold, 10 Weeks Exploring God's Presence in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was recorded in Winnipeg, Canada, for Prairie Presbyterian Church, where I am the pastor. Today is part eight, God not in the fire, earthquake, or storm. We acknowledge that we are gathered on Treaty One land, first entrusted by Creator God to the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, the homeland of the Red River Métis. Investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back, I'm never out of your sight. Your thoughts, how rare, how beautiful. God, I'll never comprehend them. I couldn't even begin to count them any more than I could count the sand of the sea. Oh, let me rise in the morning and live always with you. Where can I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? Where can I flee?
service is based on the text in 1 Kings 19, in which Elijah runs away, afraid for his life, and has several encounters with God. As I read the text in preparation for this service, I was struck by how God shows up for Elijah in numerous ways. We tend to focus on the end of this story, when God appears to Elijah in a still, small voice. This time, however, I noticed that God was there all along, feeding him, caring for him, and reassuring him. And I was reminded that God's not just there in the big dramatic stuff. Sometimes God is in the meal we eat, the surprise $5 we find in the pocket of a winter coat, or in the beauty of the dragonfly I watched through the window at Starbucks while I wrote this. As we take time to confess this morning, be reminded that God's presence is among us always, even when we don't feel it or recognize it. Let us pray. God of the still, small voice, we often come before you in silence, longing to hear you speak to us, yet don't hear your whispers. We anticipate that your presence will come in big, dramatic ways and are both disappointed and often relieved when it doesn't. So often we lack the patience of Elijah to simply sit and wait. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We want answers and action now, not later. You see us, all of us, whether we are running in fear or drawing near. As we worship today, Let us be aware of your constant presence in our lives, in all the forms it takes. Reassure us that you are there in our most challenging moments when we feel so very alone. Feed us, hold us, guide us, and speak to us. Amen. Friends, hear the good news. God is with us. God loves us and God forgives us. No matter how many times we turn away, how many times we run in the opposite direction or in the busyness of our lives, miss hearing your still small voice. God is here. Know today that you are forgiven and be at peace. 
And may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Today, I invite you to consider the significance of this ritual, sharing a sign of peace, to consider it as more than something we just do, words we say, to remember the deep significance it conveys. In Christ, there is peace. So we share a sign of peace in whatever way you choose to do it. And as you do it, know that you are joining with Christians from the very early church right through to today. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And at that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way. Today we're going to talk a bit about success and failure. Uh, a number of years ago, I was at a conference about starting new organizations, starting new churches. And um, one of the workshops that I was in, the speaker of the workshop, the leader of the workshop, was talking about how when you're starting a new organization, you need to create a team and then create or manufacture wins for the team. And you put enough wins together to create momentum and so you can have this success. Uh, as I was listening to him, and he was talking specifically about churches, 
um, I thought there's something maybe a little off about this that doesn't maybe fit with the biblical narrative of just create win after win after win after win. Uh, it sounded more like a uh, business strategy rather than um, maybe what the gospel says um, or maybe what the Bible says, particularly when we follow um, one who went to the cross and died for our sins, uh, died for the sake of the world. That doesn't sound like a super winning kind of story all the time. Today, we uh, heard the story of Elijah, and there's actually another story about Elijah that we need to know about before looking at this story, and it's a story of a huge success that Elijah has, and then him having to deal with some of the fallout of that success and maybe a failure. Um, so Elijah is a prophet, and sometimes when we hear the word prophet, we think of predictor of the future, someone who's like a fortune teller who can kind of see the future and, and tell people about it. That's not really what prophets are necessarily, and especially in Elijah's case, he doesn't do much predicting of the future, but he's actually closer to like superhero more than he is fortune teller. Uh, I saw the new Thor movie a few weeks ago. I don't know how many of you might have seen that. But basically, you know, superheroes in, in modern movies and modern consciousness, comic books, they go toe-to-toe with the enemy, right? They they fight and they use, they have the, these crazy powers and all these kinds of things. And actually, Elijah is kind of like that when you read the story. There's this story about him going onto a particular mountain, Mount Carmel. And uh, I always think about, there's a, there's a medical clinic in Winnipeg, Mount Carmel Clinic. I wonder if uh, it's because miracles happen on Mount Carmel, maybe. I don't know if that's why that's called that. But basically, this is kind of a miracle, but it's a showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and 450 prophets of a competing God called Baal. And what's happened in Israel at this time is that the people are kind of waffling. Sometimes they go and worship God, the, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And sometimes they go and worship Baal, kind of, you know, whatever works for us. And Elijah decides to call them out on this and says, look, make up your mind, do one or the other, but I know the one that's the right one. Okay. Um, and then he sets up this competition, this contest on Mount Carmel between himself and 450 prophets or prophets of Baal. And it's a showdown. Basically, they're to set up a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and then they're supposed to pray for fire to come down from heaven from their gods. And whichever prophet manages to get fire to come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice without them lighting their own match, without them doing it, that's who's going to win the competition. And so, you know, Elijah, you guys go ahead first, 450 of you, you try, I'm the only one. And the reason is the only one is because the, um, the other prophets of God have, have been killed off or have switched sides. And so he's the only one, but he lets the 450 go first and they start praying and singing and chanting and trying to get this fire to come down and it never comes in. It's actually kind of a, a bit of a comedic scene because Elijah does things like, well, maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe you just need to call him louder. Just be louder. And so they get even louder and they try and nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. 
And so he says, wait, before I start, what I want you to do, dig a trench around the altar first. So they do that. And then he says, bring a whole bunch of jugs of water. And I want you to pour the water all over the sacrifice and all over the altar. And they pour so much water that it runs over everything and then fills the trench that's around them. And so it's kind of like saying, look, my God is so powerful that the, the sacrifice is going to be able to burn even when it's drenched. And that's exactly what happens. So Elijah prays, the fire comes down, it consumes the sacrifice, and the fire is so hot that it evaporates all the water, even in the trench. <laughs> so it's just like this over-the-top supernatural thing that happens. Well, the people see this and they realize, wow, Elijah was right all along. That is the one true God. And Elijah says, don't let the prophets of Baal escape. And the people chase them down and they end up killing off the prophets of Baal. And we might be horrified by that, but try to think of like superhero movies where the, the superhero is going toe to toe with the enemy that also might have some supernatural powers. And then they win the day in the end, right? They, they go after the enemy and there's this big fight, this big battle and Elijah wins. The superhero wins. That's what happens. But in Elijah's story, it doesn't stop there because we actually have another motif that we still have in literature and in movies today that shows up in the Elijah story. Actually, probably one of the original evil queens. We know about evil queens, right? In this one, the queen's name is Jezebel. That might be a familiar name to some of us. Oh, that's from the Bible. That's from this story. Jezebel was married to Ahab. Both were described as evil people, evil rulers. Now, Jezebel, she worshiped Baal. So she was really not happy when Elijah did this thing on the mountain that convinced the people to kill off the prophets of Baal. And so she decides, I'm going to kill Elijah. And I'm going to make sure that he gets killed. And she has the power to do it because she's the queen of Israel. And so when we get to this story, Elijah's had this huge success but he's also now on the run and is scared for his own life. So his huge success hasn't actually turned into the kind of win that he wanted. It maybe was a short-term win, but it hasn't actually really changed much in Israel. The king and queen are still evil and have evil intent, and nothing's going to change, it seems like. And so he goes a day's journey into the wilderness and finds a tree. He sits under it and he asks that he might die. He prays to God. He says, it's enough now. Oh Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my ancestors. Now this is really, really important. What happens here with Elijah because he's had this huge success, but he realizes it doesn't amount to anything. I'm no better than my ancestors is Elijah's way of, of saying, like, I failed. I haven't, like, even though I did what I was supposed to do, and even though I had the victory, it actually has led to nothing. I've really failed. And what ends up happening for Elijah is that from that place, he ends up traveling for 40 days and 40 nights to a different mountain. So he was on Mount Carmel, and then he gets to Mount Horeb, Another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's the mountain of God where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. And 
he has this experience of God where there's this great wind and it says the wind is so strong it's splitting the rocks apart. There's an earthquake and there's fire as well. But God is not in any of these, we're told. God's not in the fire or the earthquake or the wind. And this is really important. I wrote in my notes here the words theophanic significance. I know what we all, do we know what that means? Theophanic significance? I thought it sounded good. Uh, theophany, we remember, is an appearance of God. God showing up, um, kind of like epiphany is the appearance of an idea. Theophany, theophanic significance. So this is really significant because suddenly we've had lots of stories in the Bible about God showing up, in fact, in fire or an earthquake or in great winds. And now we have a story where we're told those things happen on the very mountain of God where Moses gets the Ten Commandments, but God is not in them. And this is Extra significant for Elijah, of course, because he has just on a different mountain called down fire from God. But now God is not in the fire. But then uh, there's a sound of sheer silence, we're told, or some translations will say there was a still small voice. And the traditional understanding, right, is that God is in the fire. That's the, that's the first traditional understanding is that there's a pillar of fire. God is in that. There's a burning bush. God is in that. Then there's sort of a new traditional understanding is that, okay, on the mountain, God is in this still small voice or God is in this sound of sheer silence. But actually, what does it really say in the story? Because God speaks to Elijah throughout the story. It's not as though God is missing from the story and then suddenly there's this still small voice or this sheer silence and then there's God. No, God's been there throughout the story. In fact, when when Elijah gets to the mountain and gets to the top of the mountain, the first thing that happens is God speaks to Elijah. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah responds and says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Uh, not jealous, zealous. Uh, zealous means like fervent or, I mean, it's faithful to the nth degree. So I've been faithful, but I've also been super active. My faith is driving my actions. Um, someone might even say, I've been on fire for God. <laughs> the fire again. That's what Elijah's saying. I've been very zealous. I've been on fire for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites. They've forsaken your covenant, Elijah says, thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And now they are seeking my life to take it away. That's his interpretation of the events. And God responds to Elijah and says, wait here, because I'm about to pass by. So right now he's just hearing a voice, but now God's saying, I'm about to pass by. In other words, we're about to get the big revelation of God's presence. Here comes God. And there's a fire. God's not in that. There's an earthquake. God's not in that. There's a wind. God's not in that. And then there's the sheer silence. Nothing. And we think, ah, yes, there's God. We have deep communion in the silence. Let's all practice centering prayer because we've done that for a few weeks. 
Let's all sit in a circle and be at peace and be quiet and meditate and God will be in the quiet. Except the problem is the text actually doesn't say that. Why doesn't the Bible say, well, then God did in fact pass by in the silence, in the still small voice. It doesn't say that. Instead, it just says there's all this big stuff, fire, earthquake, wind, and it explicitly says about those, God was not in them. And then it just says, and then there was sheer silence. There was nothingness. Well, Elijah is in a cave at the top of the mountain, and when he hears the silence, he leaves the cave, wraps his cloak around him, leaves the cave and stands there. And then a voice says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. And Elijah gives exactly the same answer. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking to take my life away. He says exactly the same thing. And then after that, God tells Elijah what he's supposed to do next. Go back down the mountain and then on to the next mission. He commissions them and gives them a new task to do. So now it's time for something else. So is that it? What do we learn from this? So huge success, huge disappointment, wanting it all to end because I'm no better than my ancestors. I've failed. And then you hear from God, well, you know what? There's more work to do. Here's another task. Is that how we're supposed to handle success and failure? Just on to the next thing. Here you go. Move on. There's an always more work to do. It's true. Well, actually, I kind of glossed over something in the story. When Elijah was um, on that very first day, and he's lying down under the tree, and he says, it's enough now, take away my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. When he says that, he ends up lying down, and he goes to sleep, actually. He doesn't immediately go on the journey. And what happens is an angel comes and taps him, on the shoulder and wakes him up and says, get up and eat. And there's some food and drink miraculously there for Elijah to have. Get up and eat. Um, this reminded me as well about, uh, it was, this happened this week, but this happens sometimes as well with, um, with my daughter. Uh, this week it happened where she said, early in the morning. It was maybe 9.30 in the morning, 10 in the morning. It's not that early, but she said, oh, I'm tired. Wait, you can't be tired at 10 in the morning, right? Um, so my first response to her was, have you had anything to drink yet this morning? Oh, right. I forgot. <laughs> so she went and got herself a glass of water. You're actually thirsty, not tired. It also reminded me of, I used to have uh, a coach who um, would, uh, that I'd meet with regularly uh, when we were first, when I was first doing church planting. And uh, his name was Brian. And I, the number of times in our coaching where he would ask me things like, well, how many glasses of water are you drinking a day? <laughs> I think, or, you know, are you eating fruit? 
he would ask me, or what are you doing for exercise? And I wasn't coming to him with problems of nutrition. I was coming to him with, we're having trouble figuring out, well, what is the place that we're going to rent for our worship services? Or this person is upset about something, and I'm not sure exactly how to handle that or, or what I need to talk to them about. Or how do we make this critical decision about what the next step of the church is? And he's asking me about water and fruit and exercise. It was actually kind of annoying but in a way, he was right, because if you get some of those things right, right, if you're drinking and eating properly and, and being healthy, well, it also allows you to think through some of those problems better. And sometimes the answer to feeling like a failure, where Elijah was feeling like a failure, feeling like you're making no progress, drink some water, have some nutritious food, And then look where God shows up. Is it the fire, the earthquake, the wind, the silence? Actually, at the beginning of this story, the place where God shows up is with an offer of nourishment in the form of actual food. So we read that after the angel says, get up and eat, he looks and there was cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank. And then we find The next thing we read is it says, and then he lay down again. Is he just so defeated that he just falls back down like the food and drink actually did not help him? He can't get out of bed, right? He can't get up. It's way too much for him. Or maybe he really also needs the rest. He's gone toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of Baal after all. And he's on the run because the queen, who has the most power in the entire land is after him to kill him. He's found a safe spot under a tree. He maybe needs a bit of rest. Notice as well that there's no condemnation from God for his exhaustion. And his exhaustion is probably more mental and spiritual than it is physical. Instead, what happens in this story, which is actually really amazing, is the angel just comes back a second time after letting him fall back asleep and says... Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. And so he eats some more and then sets out on this journey to the other mountain, to Mount Horeb. Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. Hold on a second. There's a journey. This is a journey. It's not a dead end, right? It's not, oh, there was success and now I'm going to go to greater and greater and greater success or there was success and now there's failure and it's over. This is a dead end. No, 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 you're on a journey. There is more to this. There's always more to this. You're always on a journey. And we read that he then got up and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. He travels for 40 days days. He's journeying. And probably at the same time as walking, he's in a way resting. And he's depending on the nourishment that's been given from outside of himself. He's getting away. He's retreating. This is not a story where Elijah 
learns to just get over that last set of events by moving on to the next set of events, right? That's, that's not really how the journey works. It's not just move on, here's the next task. He has laid down for two full days, had some food, and then he walks for 40 days. And then he spends a night on a mountain. And then after getting the next assignment, presumably he walks back again for another 40 days. So at least 82 days of not doing the tasks that are in Israel for him to do. Almost three months. Elijah takes a three-month sabbatical to go from, it's over, I'm done, to, okay, I've got the next direction now. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. Here, here we go. But it's not instant. I don't know why we think it should be instant for us. Why do we think, oh, just get over it. That was hard. Okay, but get over it. Move on. Like There's things to do. He takes at least 82 days. 40-day walk in each direction. Two days of lying down to start. You might have had huge success in your life and you may have had major setbacks in your life. You might feel anxious or afraid. And for us today, often that gets framed around our actions, right? If we're anxious or afraid, we might say things like, oh, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do next. Sometimes it really is about our feelings. We might not even say, I'm anxious, or we, but we might say, I just, things feel off, or I feel awful and I can't shake it, or I can't seem to find joy anymore. Sometimes it's about responding to external circumstances that are beyond us. Um, sometimes our response actually becomes internal, even though the circumstances are external. We, we become ashamed for our own inadequacies or for not rising above the challenges that are coming toward us. Or maybe we don't feel ashamed at all, but we just get really angry and it's unfair that circumstances are coming at us, that things are happening to us. So we get angry at the world or we blame others or we blame society or we blame whatever circumstances they are or we blame the universe. Well, in the biblical, the ancient biblical worldview, all of that that I just described in more, say, modern language or secular language, all of that was about where is God or what is God doing? How did I get to this place was actually a question of why God has done this to me or to us. Why has God put me in this situation? And where is God to do something about it? That's how they ask the questions. So when God is the one who asks the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah is kind of defensive, right? The way he answers that question is defensive. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, for, for you, because he's answering God. In other words, I've done everything right. And now, guess what? I'm the only one left. All those external circumstances, they're coming in the form of, you know, a party that's been sent by the queen to kill me. I've done everything right. 
God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he's saying, look, look, I've done all the right things. What, what, what more do you want? And then after that, we get wind, earthquake, fire. God's not in any of it. We get sheer silence and no comment about whether God is in it. Just a pause. Elijah observes God is not in the fire. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the wind, at least not this time. And then there's a sound of sheer silence. It's, I think, the moment of contemplation for Elijah. It is the very midpoint of his journey, 40 days to the mountain. He still has to go back. How will Elijah respond at this moment after resting, eating, drinking, and then walking alone with his thoughts? And then right after that moment, we get the same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I actually don't think he's defensive the second time he answers. He might be kind of broken, but he also might be hopeful. He might be trusting. We don't really know for sure. Maybe the second time Elijah answers the question, even though he uses exactly the same words, maybe he's saying, I've been faithful and I still want to be and I still will be almost inviting God to give him the next stage. And then, and only then, God says, okay, here is the next stage of the journey then. Amen. In the last uh, couple of weeks, we've practiced uh, centering prayer. And in these next few weeks, you're invited to connect with God through starting a new ritual or habit or renewing something that you've done in the past. So this could really be anything. Try to think back to things that you may have done before as ways of connecting to God. And for me, this story really brought up for me that one of the main ways that I've connected with God and continue to is through going for a walk and um, and praying during that walk or just observing and doing that. Usually in nature, it's great if I'm in the forest or something like that. Um, but going for a walk and praying is a way that I've connected with God. Another one for me is um, reading the Psalms daily and taking a Psalm per day and just reading through them um, and uh, doing that over, say, three months or reading a few Psalms a day and doing that in a month. Um, but try to think for yourself what is a way that you would like to practice in a, in a daily basis or a few times a week. Um, how you would like to connect with God. And if you want to reach out to me, let me know what you're doing as, uh, or what you might have been learning over this series. Um, you can feel free to do that. Send me an email uh, or a text, and I'd be happy to hear from you to hear about how you are connecting with God. For our prayer of intercession today, I thought it would be appropriate to pray for those affected by natural disasters. Given the scripture reading about earthquakes, fires, and winds. And in my province, Manitoba, we have over 4,000 people who remain evacuated due to spring flooding and summer wildfires. And while it's hopeful that many people will be able to return home, there's much work that needs to be done. 
both for a safe repatriation and to prevent these disasters from happening again. And if you're joining us from elsewhere, I invite you to spend time in prayer today for those in your communities who've been affected by extreme conditions, disaster, and destruction. Let us pray. Lord of all majesty, dominion, and power, we come before you this morning and lift up those who have been displaced and deeply affected by summer fires, floods, tornadoes, and other destructive acts of nature. In particular this morning, we lift up the people of Peguis First Nation, many of whom have been evacuated and living in hotels with their families since early May of this year. We pray that they may return home in time for the start of a new school year, that houses can be made safe, water drinkable, and livelihoods restored. We ask that you be with leaders who struggle to lead in an unjust world, often left hanging by multiple levels of government. We ask that you be with elders, parents, and grandparents as they struggle to support children and young people when the adventure of evacuation to the city has long worn off. And we ask that you be with those who are working to support the community. We also lift up the people of Matthias Colomb First Nation, whose entire community was evacuated under cover of smoke. We ask that you protect them as they enter yet another week of living in big cities, so different from their isolated home. We ask that you be with the hydro staff who are working endless hours to restore power so the community can return home. And we ask that you be with all of those who are working to clean up a community left empty after people left with no notice. We thank you for the helpers, the staff, and volunteers who worked tirelessly to make sure that every last person was safe, at times putting their own lives at risk to ensure that each and every person was evacuated safely. And we thank you that no lives were lost directly due to these fires and floods. In our world of changing weather and climates and patterns, we ask that you be with all of those who are struggling, both near and far, and be with those working to ensure a sustainable and just future for all. Amen.
Special thanks to Ashley Boychuk for her reading and singing of the psalm, Aaron Whitaker for her tireless work on the liturgy, Wes Keeley for all his technical wizardry and producing the original videos for the series. You can find the video version of Be Still and Behold on the YouTube channel for Prairie Presbyterian Church. Visit prairiechurch.ca to find out more and to get the accompanying PDF. I'm Matt Bruff, pastor at Prairie Presbyterian Church in Winnipeg and host of this, the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. Thanks for listening today. Take care.